The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyet, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour here is Andy Constant, who's got a hell of a following and a hell of a pedigree with a lot of the things that he's done in his career. I think it should be a great, lively conversation. Andy, for those who are not familiar with your background, just introduce yourself as far as who you are, how'd you get involved in markets, what are you doing now? Sure. I've been involved in markets since about 37 years. Started at Solomon Brothers and its successor companies where I traded equity derivatives, convertible bonds, and ultimately managed the global equity derivatives business for Solomon and was a member of the management committee. I left in 2003 to start a relative value hedge fund, which did well, but my partnership ultimately fractured. So by the time the financial crisis hit, I was on the sidelines. And I realized over that time I needed to um, understand macro better because of for a variety of reasons. And so had the great opportunity to join Bridgewater, worked at Bridgewater Associates with Ray and Greg and Bob, the CIOs, to try to help them understand the volatility markets that were my specialty. And I learned macro and had a great time there, spent a little over three years with the people there and realized at that point I wanted to try something else and move to Brevin Howard, where I worked with Alan Howard and his team in doing the opposite of what Bridgewater does, both trading macro, but Brevin focusing on discretionary, where Bridgewater was entirely systematic. That ended with Alan deciding to um, put his strategy team, me as the chief strategist, out into the world as a separate entity where I would he would fund me to essentially provide what the macro strategy that I provided him and his team to a broader range of hedge fund clients. And that's when I launched Damp Spring. And Damp Spring does that primarily. I manage a small pool of money for an individual investor, and I am a strategist for a a large hedge fund clientele. And that's where I found Twitter. And Twitter was, um, you know, I'd always been on Twitter. And you regretted it ever ever since discovering Twitter. Right. (laughs) Right. You know, I had always used Twitter as a news source for, you know, fast, broad, diverse news when I was away on my phone or not as close to my Bloomberg terminal or whatever it might be. And even with Bloomberg terminal, they miss stuff. And But I started contributing about 18 months ago, and people sort of liked my voice. It was one of education first, some market observations, economic ed- observations, and that got a following. And since then, I've developed a, a client business that comes from helping typically 
either high net worth individuals or brokerage offices that are trying to come up, you know, up, teach their clients things about, you know, how to invest. And, you know, the following at Twitter has grown. It's, you know, it does have its challenges, but I have a thick skin after 37 years at the places I've worked. All right. So let's first focus on understanding macro for a moment, because it seems like everyone on FinTwit is a macro expert. And I don't really know if people understand what macro really is. I want you to define how you put together a macro framework and how should people learn about some of these these broad dynamics? So like in my world, it's much more macro from the lens of intermarket analysis, right? The way that different asset classes will interact with each other. I think most people seem to think macro is all about just interest rates. But but let's define macro a little bit here. Sure. And again, like anything, the, the de- definitions are nuanced. I'll tell you how I think about it. I think about it in two ways. One is what it is in terms of a framework. And then the other is how you take that framework and implement it in markets. And so the second thing is there's is has tremendously different and I worked at two very different firms that approached macro and are clearly great macro firms in completely different ways. There's the classic sort of Soros tutor well, Tudor less so. Soros, let's use Soros as an example, where the idea is to take a big bet on a single thing that is has to do with macroeconomics, politics, acts of central bankers, and so on. And, you know, Brevin was very much like that. They bet on, on, on big event-driven sort of macro things. Whereas Bridgewater has a hundred different assets they trade every single day and has and is trying to chop little bits of alpha out of the markets every day in a highly diversified and purely systematic way. So there's lots of ways to implement it. And I don't have any, you know, I've seen it all, you know, it's just an implementation. But the framework is the important thing. And my framework, the damp spring framework is, it's my framework, you take it for what it is. It looks at the what are four pillars. There's two that are the classic macro pillars, which are what is the expectation of growth in an economy and how do those, how do those expectations play out with what actually happens. There's, that's pillar number one. Pillar number two is the same thing with inflation and inflation expectations. And the other two pillars are my new ones, I guess. And that is I have a high degree of, of a high conviction that particularly over the last 12 years since the financial crisis, 14 years since the financial crisis, and then certainly the last few, growth and inflation have been important drivers, but the most important driver has been risk premium. And so my third pillar is all about risk premium. What is the balance between the amount of money and credit available for that investors have to invest in the, in the financial markets and real economy? and the supply of assets that need someone to own them. And that dynamic is, is, has been obviously very impacted by things like QE, QT, rate changes, etc. And that also, and this is one of the things of, that I'd want to talk about in this conversation, that also has an effect on the ability for investors and the willingness for investors to lever, which depends highly on how volatile each asset is and how correlated or uncorrelated each asset is in the global portfolio. And so those two things, volatility, portfolio volatility and money and credit supply and demand 
are the basis of my third pillar. The last pillar is flows and positioning, which is the whole idea of macro is to buy, the whole idea of alpha is to buy something before somebody else buys it and sell it to them when they do at a higher price. And so knowing how people are positioning positioned is essential to, even if you have the growth inflation and risk premium called, you have to call it relative to what other people will eventually do. And so that's what I think of when I think of macro. You can apply it to, that framework can be applied to everything, not just it can be applied to single stocks. It's looser when you deal with things that are, that have themselves a ton of idiosyncratic risk. And so I just use that framework to invest. Call it macro. The reason why I invest in broad asset classes is because the drivers of my framework have most of their idiosyncratic, the idiosyncratic risk of that asset has been, is, is small relative to the principal drivers. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack there. So first of all, you mentioned with the experience of Bridgewater that they were much more systematic. You came in and, and maybe gave them a different viewpoint on volatility, which somewhat alludes to discretionary trading. And it sounds like your framework is using numbers and is quant-ish, but not necessarily rules-based. It's more discretionary factorings in sort of the the weight of the evidence, so to speak. Talk about some of the advantages and disadvantages of a systematic approach, a rules-based approach versus a one that's much more based on a discretionary outlook, right? Because I'm a cheerleader to the approach, but it has nothing to do with my opinion, right? Times like this, it doesn't really work because the relationships that that rules-based system relies on clearly have not behaved the way historically it otherwise would suggest it would. Whereas if you're discretionary, maybe you could have said, well, I'll override this and go commodities or oil, right? So just talk about some of the pros and cons of the differences of the two schools of thought. Yeah. So, you know, back in the early 90s, I was doing statistical arbitrage and market making of individual stocks for Solomon and my team built high frequency trading models that were purely systematic. So, and of course, I've seen great discretionary traders over the years. And I would say that I am not religious about that. I think the number one benefit for systematic trading is that it removes emotion from the decision, which discretionary just simply can't. It's a human brain. That brain is affected by things that are that a computer's brain is not. And so my approach to this discussion is if I can systemize it, I will. And so most of the indicators that my framework depends are systematic in nature. And the things that aren't systematic that still require a human to look at could be one of two things. I haven't figured out how to how to systemize it, or I haven't had the time yet to systemize it. But the direction is to systemize everything I do. The problem with systematic trading is, I think you said it well, which is what a computer is great at is looking at all, and Ray would say this the best, the idea of a systematic trading system is that you're taking a digital observation of the world, which may be false because the pixels that you happen to identify are not all the pixels necessary to to see the image, or it may be true, but let's just worry about confidence later. Let's say you have a pixelated version of what is the world looks like that a macro, sorry, that a discretionary trader sees in analog. 
Now the job is to compare that to history and see if, let's say, your digital picture matches exactly a series of other digital pictures and the probability of a certain outcome if once that picture has been identified represents a trade. That's what systematic trading systems do. They compare these digital pictures through time and how they behave subsequently. And so I think that's great. And computers are excellent at that. But they have the failure of getting the the digital picture is inaccurate relative to the ones they're comparing because they've they've recognized a a a lion as a tiger or but it's close but it's not exactly the same and then there's of course the problem that systematic and discretionary traders have which is that sometimes something that no one has ever seen before is what the picture the image is And then what do you do? And obviously, systematic trading strategies are particularly vulnerable to that because they don't, they may, it's more likely that they'll compare that to an image in the past than an analog person may see that is definitely not a tiger and will make adjustments. And so that's how I think about it broadly. No, and and I think the way that that's framed is is 100% correct. And I've always made this point that diversification doesn't really come from asset class, it really comes from strategies, right? Which means that if you think about how to really have a robust portfolio, I would argue that you'd want some part of your portfolio to be quantitative rules-based. That's, you know, as you correctly noted, doesn't have any emotion, is just doing its thing based on some historical observation. But it's also not a bad idea to pair that against a discretionary portion of the portfolio so that you can express your own views, your own analysis. And that combination of, you know, rules-based active and then kind of discretionary active, I would argue, is actually what makes for a much more robust portfolio longer term. That's interesting. I don't disagree. And I think even the most systematic Bridgewater had some highly limited discretionary ability. I, when during my time there, I got to see the portfolio very intimately. And I think 1% of the risk was in things the CIOs said, you know, let's have some discretion here. So out of 99, out of 100, I mean, so very small. But I think what happens is people tend to get religious about the topic. And so they're really trying to root out all discretion, or they simply do not believe in systematic. And I see it being more that that's an interesting point to, to, to raise on whether that would actually be a diversifier. Right. And to me, the, the I mean, the way to think about that is, it's really around diversification of the false signals, right? So like if you're a rules-based, false signals would be your risk on and it's really a risk-off environment and markets go down or the other way around, right? So it's the times you're wrong that you want to diversify against. So you're going to have times when you're wrong systematically in in an approach. You're also going to have times when you're wrong from a discretionary perspective. And the hope would be that it's those times you're wrong which are not correlated. Yeah, and and that's the thing, finding that, truly diversifying portfolio addition is 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 tough that's one of the things that i thought alan did such an unbelievable job at brevin you know his type his returns were never good during sort of the time when everybody was making money you know he'd claw around positive slight slight low single digits in either direction and then when things go haywire alan makes a fortune it's an interesting dilemma because for people who run money, 
for people who allocate money to strategies, an uncorrelated five years of zero and one year of 100 is unattractive. Even though it is uncorrelated and exactly what your portfolio needs, you just can't. You, these guys don't have the patience to stick with the five zeros. And so it's, it's, it's a problem in money management and finding that truly, the particularly the one you describe, which is the one you need in environments like this, requires incredible patience by the allocators. And they're not built that way. No, no. I, I actually, I love that you mentioned this because this is, this is why being marked to market daily, let alone second by second when you have an ETF is hell, right? Because you end up having a tremendous amount of short-termism and you're right. And there's a lot of psych- psychological studies that show that, you know, the, you, the human mind favors consistency, even if it's an illusion, right? right? And in reality, because markets do not follow a normal distribution, it's the tails. It's the, it's the, it's the hundreds that make up all the return, not the not the sort of you know continuous performance month to month or year to year, right? It's it's not the frequency, it's the magnitude. But to your point, especially if you're in the business, it's very hard to raise assets. And I know this because I speak from experience on that, with a strategy that's designed to have these alpha explosions and then kind of nothing else for a while, and then another alpha explosion and then nothing else for a while. So how do you think about that from an SMA perspective? Right. So I had this discussion a little bit earlier that in the business of investment management, you've got different vehicles, you've got separately managed accounts, you've got public funds. With separately managed accounts, you can handhold with public funds. It's not so easy because you can't necessarily track the flows. But when you have an approach that's designed to play the fat pitch, so to speak, talk through how you communicate that to clients and if you end up losing clients because they simply stop believing you because it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, it's a challenge. Thank, I haven't had to market that type of fund. That's not my... I, I'm more of the Bridgewater, let's try to make alpha all the time approach and still be diversified. But, you know, my experience in, with Brevin was that just all conceptually, the problem with any, and SMAs are like this, you can't run a business on zero fees. You can't hire the people that prepare you for the 100% return and maintain. So you can't even run a business. It's very difficult to run a business to, on, on that type of return stream. So that's one. And then almost always, like this, this idea of a capital call for your tail fund, where you don't, where the investor is pledges to, you know, provide the adequate capital for the tail fund to lever up when the opportunity presents itself doesn't work because these pledges turn into redemptions of all the allocators, other assets, and there is no money when the tail needs to be invested in. So, you know, I don't have the, honestly, I don't have the solution of this sort of thing. It's a, it's just a systematic tra- challenge for investing. And leaving capital sitting around doing zero is what it takes. It's not making a pledge to fund when you need it. It's having that money sitting around without any possibility of funding your any redemptions you receive from your original, you know, your your sort of beta style investments, the ones that perform like the rest of the market. So that's just a matter of patience. And it's something that's very, very difficult for anyone to have. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. 
Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. And the real classic example of that is, you know, the, the various hedge funds that were betting on the housing bubble bursting, right? Thinking that they would be making a killing betting against housing. And many were early in that bet, ultimately right, but they couldn't even survive long enough because their underlying asset base just wasn't patient enough. Yep. Even though two years in the grand scheme of things or three years is really a small period of time when you think about an investment thesis. It sure is. And, you know, again, I think it's just one of those things that is fairly unusual for, to find an investor who will do that and will underperform because you're paying. You're paying for the tail and underperform for a period of time just to outperform when it's when when everybody else is underperforming. Right. It's, it's even worse when <laughs> the way that you express the way to make money off of the tail in equities is itself going through its own tail, which is what's happening with the interaction of treasuries to stocks, which which we'll get into, which, by the way, may have already ended. But the last six months have been remarkable in the sequence of returns of the risk on and risk off dynamic, which, again, we'll talk about. But let, let me get some of the audience up here. Go ahead and meet yourself. Sure, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I guess the first thing that I really like to do, which is extremely difficult and noisy, but I think you have to just step back and say, why are you doing it? Which is trying to attribute market moves to what's going on in the world, because that's a learning. Now, what I see in the popular media, on Twitter, on the television channels that do this, is every because they are in the business of of spreading ink. Everyone has an opinion on the attribution. And so you hear everyone's opinion, which, and they're all weighted fairly heavily based on how much they yell, whatever it might be. But the process of attribution is an essential element of understanding the interaction between markets and events of the day. And so I like to, every day, I have a, and by the way, Greg and, and, and I and a number of the other investment associates at Bridgewater would always do this. Every day, we'd sort of at the end of the day guess the PL. We knew what the positions were. And so we sort of guessed the PL. And that was a process of attribution. That wasn't a process of trying to bet what, you know, calculate. It was saying, was today a day in which growth, uh, let's just keep it at the highest level, global growth expectations rose. Well, if so, stocks should have gone up, bonds should have gone down, commodities maybe should have gone up. And because growth might need to be hampered, the curve might have, you know, the interest rate curve might have done a certain thing and each of those things. And then we compared our attribution to the results. Now, of course, markets change based on lots of different things. Number one, we could have been wrong about it being a growth on day. Number two, even in a growth on day, bonds might have rallied because of flow and positioning. 
But if you do that daily, just as an exercise, and then you do it weekly, and then you do it monthly, and you do it in an honest way with a framework that you apply consistently, because you can't change your framework. That's what I see on CNBC. They change their framework every moment. But if you apply a framework to an attribution process, a lot of learning comes from that. Well, by the way, let me add to that real quick. This point about attribution is really very, very important. Right? The irony about this year, which has been so many, is that the indicators have been correctly risk off, but it's been risk off that's acted risk on correlating to equities. Right? So that attribution point is important. Now, I will say real quick that from my vantage point, and this is kind of the joke of all these papers that won these different awards over the years I've put out there, the common theme in everything as far as thinking about global markets for me is what what's the change in the demand for money, which is really just me saying it's all about interest rates. Right? It's all about what's happening in terms of the cost of capital either increasing, decreasing the rate of change, and if certain indicators are noticing that the cost of capital is likely to change before other indicators, other markets are are reacting, right? And if we go with the idea that most tail events and equities are one of the necessary precursors for a tail event, aside from leverage, is a liquidity lessening, right? Then I would argue that the the most important thing for any investor, trader, asset allocator to, to think through is what's happening to the demand for money and how does that impact different portions of their portfolio. I don't know if you'd agree with that, Andy, but that's sort of the way that, that I might Yeah, I mean, that, that, that hits my third frame pillar right where it belongs and is what is the pillar that's been as i said the most important for since the great financial crisis but in particular over the last 3 3 years and yeah that's driving everything and i would say it slightly differently than you did regarding interest rates there can be high demand of money and low supply of money meaning money is tight and assets do badly at negative interest rates that it isn't the level of rate that matters, it's the risk premium and whether that's contracting or expanding. And what I mean by that is if you look at Japan and Europe, they've had extremely low negative levels of interest rates. And yet the economic activity that one would think would happen when money is so-called easy has been lackluster to say the least, even coming out of COVID. And that's not that's because the level negative isn't what's important. It's what the level should be for money to be easy. So what I mean by that is negative interest rates were not negative enough to encourage the type of easy money. And so we could have easy money at 10% interest rates, and we could have easy money at 2% interest rates, and we could have tight money at negative interest rates, and we could have easy money at very positive interest rates. It's about that more so than it is the level. Yeah, let me start with that. I'm very enthusiastic about the investing right now in China. And the reason why I'm enthusiastic is they have both relatively high levels of interest rates and relatively cheap stocks. That is a nice combination when you're trying to create a balanced portfolio. I spent a lot of time thinking about balanced portfolios. And the one lacking thing that you have in Europe and Japan right now is in anti-growth environments, potentially future recessions, interest rates are just too low for your bond portfolio to hedge your equity portfolio drawdown. 
Whereas in China and the U.S., you have balance. You can buy long-term bonds, and when you have a recession, those bonds should perform well. They may not. Well, you can come on. We can come back to that, but they will respond to an anti-growth shock. And so that's how I score countries. But it brings up an interesting point, which is that I think is what you're on, which is China's very difficult to invest in because of rule of law issues, capital control issues, simple government reaching in and killing internet stocks. And you have to include that in your risk assessment. So yeah, you need a, so the basic rule of law is key. And then you need some other sets of things that are how these countries have in the past dealt with crisis. And there's always more unknown variables too, right? I mean, it's the the rule of law point, Andy, is is one that I think people underappreciate, right? I mean, that's something that that I think Greenspan in in the age of turbulence made it a point that the reason why the U.S. market is the the go-to place is because there is rule of law. You don't have to necessarily worry about the government suddenly killing off an industry like China did with the you know private tutoring education side of things. But that's not to say that there isn't a price, even when you factor that in, right, as as a as a part of the thesis for investing outside the US. Exactly. I mean, I I believe that China has a higher risk and I expect a higher return. And I would only pay for that risk with if I expected a higher return. I'll, I'll add a thought to that. I don't do that either. <laughs> but what I would say is that whatever, even if even if we did do that, I would argue that it, it almost doesn't matter because time and time again, we've seen that there's some something seemingly comes out of left field that throws all models off. Right, and and a lot of that I think is because we're in this constant state of releveraging, which creates any number of butterflies flapping their wings, creating a hurricane, which makes any sort of longer term thesis. Uh, always, a, I think, a challenge. I don't know if that's a fair way to characterize the question. Does, uh, does that make sense, Jason? I mean, I, I think it's when you're in a highly leveraged, and this is something, a point that Talib, despite <laughs> the, the heat I got around the black swan analogy, something that Talib is correct on, he, he would make the argument quite a bit that forecasting the future is so much harder when you have high leverage, because again, small things can have big impacts that you can't even consider as part of a model. Yeah, I would, I would just step back and say that it doesn't help me invest. It's useful, I think, to consider a wide, wide range of possibilities, including all the things Michael just mentioned regarding tail and Taleb has talked about. And that's in my thesis. And it just tells me that if I were to invest with a three to five year horizon, I would almost certainly be wrong. But in fairness, though, and I make this point often, too, that you still need to have some kind of macro tailwind that's longer term for any kind of short term view. Yeah. Right. So and and so like even like mechanically, right? From a let's say you did a back test using momentum. Works wonderfully for the US, right? Because the US has been the place to be for the last decade plus. Works terribly on emerging markets. My point about indicator versus opportunity set, the macro tailwind has not favored emerging markets for a decade. So if you did any kind of momentum back test on emerging markets, you'd fail miserably because it goes up and then collapses and goes up and collapses. It's just volatile cash. So it, it's an interesting thought experiment, right? Because while I agree, you, 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 it's hard to figure out how to invest based on the unknowable long term. You still need to have a long term dynamic favor your short term. Does that, does that make sense? I'll give you one thing. There's some clear trends in the world that are worth that are important for investing. The number one being a shrinking population growth. 
there'll be a period of time, I don't know if it's 2050, like the UN says, or sometime later, where we may reach a point where we have shrinking population. Currently, it grows, and it grows at a lower rate than it ever has. And that rate is projected to continue to fall. And that has a clear long-term implication on the global economies, what we can expect from standard of living improvements, absent some technological revolution, which happened, but, you know, we'll see. And that has an implication. And the other thing is high indebtedness. And those two headwinds to growth are a megatrend that you can't ignore. However, they are also highly cyclical. And the other thing I would say, and this we haven't yet seen yet, there is a cyclical, political, and cultural reaction that is in the midst of of occurring post-COVID of something that is extremely detrimental to long-term growth. And that is the deglobalization trend, and the which includes the duplication of supply lines, supply chains. Not which won't add any actual additional production. It's just investment that is invested just in case there is another COVID, and that investment will not increase global wealth. And then there's the rebuilding of. And then there's the energy infrastructure, desire to be energy independent, which, you know, in the U.S., one side is about sustainability and the other is more about drilling what we have. Those are conflicts which may make the U.S. in gridlock. But the broad idea of improving energy independence has some wasted spending as well. And so there's this deglobalization growth impact short term in that factories are going to be built and supply chains are going to be built and very negative implications long term when we realize that we have a lot of duplication. But again, I would add to that that talking endpoints and going back to the role of managing money is always about the sequence. It's the, the, I would keep making that point. It's about the path, not the prediction. Right. right. And that's, it was kind of goes back to that zero, 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 and then a hundred. Right. right. And that's why I can't use it for investing. Right. And that's 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 exactly right. That's, but again, it's good to have this stuff in the background because at least, you know, I, I always make it a point that diversification is having exposure to as many future paths as possible. Right. That's really which goes back to the active versus passive you know, rules based versus discretionary. And that really means you should invest in everything. By the way, including, I would argue, despite all the hatred I get around the store of value stuff I've, I've been hitting on for a year plus, I'd argue that's also a, a case for Bitcoin because it's betting on a very particular path and sequence that may or may not happen, but you still want to have some exposure to it in case it does, right? And that's that I think is, is a different mindset than I think, unfortunately, a lot of people don't have. I think that initial response tells, tells you Andy's view on that. I mean, which and, and I, I struggle, Andy, with the same dilemma. I mean, my response is always, you have to tell your clients to turn the TV off to not get exposed to noise. But that's obviously very, very hard to, to do, right? And let alone TV, turn off Twitter, turn off your phone. We'll be back after a quick break. 
Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, to me, it's systemize what every everything you can. That's the first step. And I don't mind people being informed and and being current and being, you know, it's just a question of the waiting and how it actually results in a change in the in in your investment. And it's so personal and everyone is exposed to it and other things in their lives expose them to it so that There's no simple answer to put it away except systemizing, but even system, even people, you know, Cliff Asnes is all over Twitter all the time, and his systems on value have been destroyed for decades, but he's not, he just comes back with the same framework, but he has to question it. If you're not questioning your framework, you're failing. Because nobody has the perfect framework and it needs to be and it needs to be improved. The question is, how do you make sure you're not just tilting with the wind? And so you need a fairly rigorous process of overriding existing systems with some new thing. And that's what I generally try to do. Just stick with my framework while incorporating new information into it in a way that doesn't overweight the immediate. Right. It's a very Bayesian type of way of thinking about probabilities. But you have to be, as you know, you have to be careful with that, especially if you're doing something systematic, because there's a temptation to when there's new information or a new environment to chase optimization. And that becomes problematic also, you know, for its own reasons. I want to go to the name of the space here for a moment because I was debating what to call this. And I figured let's try to play with this idea that we might be on the verge of another Great deleveraging, which sounds like a strange thing to say, but there's one way to de- to force deleveraging, which is make the cost of leveraging incredibly high. So I think there is an argument made here that we're on the verge already in some kind of you know global deleveraging cycle. I'm curious, Andy, how you view the cost of capital interest rates at these levels in terms of what the Fed is doing, and if there might be a real accident to global markets because. The reality is when you have so much leverage, going back to the butterfly effect point, it doesn't take that much to have a global margin call. You can argue we've seen that in everything really this year so far, but it may not be over. Yeah. So I measure this. I measure it by sitting in what I know, sitting in the seat of the PM who has both investors and his own internal controls that have been established you know, over the years to modify his portfolio through time. And that process is when you have a portfolio, you need to know what each asset's future volatility is going to be because that determines its risk. The higher you expect its volatility, the higher its risk. And so you have to measure what you think will be the future volatility. Now, there are lots of different ways to do it. And broadly speaking, you know, you have vol targeting funds that are small participants, small but active participants in the market that use short-term implied as their indicator. You have major, major pools of money that use something else that's slower moving, but has an aspect of short-term 
realized and implied volatilities that drive that number. And so I sent Michael a couple of graphs to prep for this conversation. And what I would say is that, and I think it's fairly obvious to everyone, that equity volatility, realized equity volatility over the last two years has been high. And that's fed into the estimate for equity volatility throughout everyone on Earth's portfolio. The same and possibly more extreme can be said to about fixed income volatility, commodity volatility, which are smaller portion of most portfolios, gold, et cetera. All of these things are exhibiting higher volatility. And far more importantly, and I think Michael has mentioned this numerous times now, is that the diversification benefit of owning fixed income has gone from historically very, very high where the 10-year rate, the 10-year price and the of 10-year bond price and S&P have been fairly negatively correlated to a point when they're almost uncorrelated now, which is a big thing because there is significantly less diversification benefit available in or at least anticipated in markets right now by people who hold risk. And so when you say lower portfolio correlate, sorry, less diversification benefit and higher individual asset volatilities. What that means is at a portfolio level, your portfolio is highly volatile. And the 60-40 portfolio, even portfolios that I prefer like all weather, have been in drawdown primarily due to this deleveraging that's required when your risk manager now looks at your X millions of dollars of long S&P as being twice as risky as it used to be, and your portfolio is twice as risky because all of the fixed income volatility is higher and there's no diversification benefit. And so the only natural response, the required response, is to delever. And so that's what you've seen. You've seen six months of deleveraging of existing portfolios. And so the question is, where are we now? And my measures right now say that it's not obvious to me that future volatility is going to roll over from what is right now in the all of these models, high, high levels, almost as high as the financial crisis levels of individual asset volatility. And whether we're going to see some correlation benefit, some um, diversification benefit return to the market, the expectation is no. We're going to see high volatility of individual assets and high and and low portfolio diversification benefit, which means you want to have no less risk. But again, from very high levels in November, all those levels were at lows. Diversification benefit was huge, and individual equity volatility and rate volatility was low. That's when you want to take off risk. I don't think we're at a point where at highs, that's the obvious trade. So I'm a little bit more optimistic about whether this is just an opportunity to lever versus an, a precipice of a great deleveraging. But I would say one thing, it matters a lot because one of the major asset owners is deleveraging, and that is the Fed. And they are making leverage, they're making others lever up. 
And that's consuming some of the capacity of, of the private sector to re-lever, is to take some. And that's why I got front run. That's why six months ago, when I wrote the uh, drum beats of QT in December, I called January going to be the absolute high in equity markets and simultaneously called for a bond sell-off. So that's been front run for six months, and portfolios are broadly delevered, and their inputs require them to be delevered. But those inputs are at very elevated levels. So you have to judge whether those elevated levels will go even higher to suggest that there's going to be additional deleveraging. So the way I handle credit, and I've written it on my uh, one of my 101s in, on my Twitter account that you can see, is I consider credit to be an equity long and a volatility short. And so credit spreads, sorry, credit spreads go up when equities fall, which they have, and credit spreads grow up when volatility estimates, future volatility estimates go up, which they have. And so I measure this, you know, through an arbitrage trade between those three things and don't see any particular divergence. I think their credit has been hit with that double whammy of both an equity sell-off and a volatility spike. But, but, but in fairness, Andy, not in the very beginning of the sell-off, right? It was much more duration than spread movement. Well, that's corporate bond prices and ETFs that have the credit that in which the credit spread may have lagged. But what killed those ETFs is the risk-free rate going up. And so the credit spreads are catching up a little bit. But without a doubt, owning corporate bonds has been owning a triple whammy. Not only did you have the double whammy of both an equity sell-off and an equity vol increase, but you also own corp- you also own treasuries, which sold off. Right. No, exactly right. And, and, and that's what made this, at least in my world, so maddening because you, you, that duration sell-off is what made the, to your point, the risk-free rate have quite a bit of risk, right? Which is obviously on the duration side. Right. For the, and, um, and that's all yeah. about, and that's all about the tightening of money. The reason why bonds sell off wasn't necessarily, inflation expectations are pretty stable. The reason why bonds sold off is because a combination of the path of interest rates to deal with inflation and the risk premium, which was common across all assets and thus eliminated the correlation, the uh, diversification benefit. And that's that was predictable from the standpoint of QT. So maybe, maybe as a final question, everybody that's here, please make sure you follow Andy. Obviously, I appreciate those that keep coming to these conversations that I do daily, putting quite a bit of effort to book with different thought leaders here. But when you think about where bonds and stocks are here, what do you think is the more clear trade? I'm not talking about investment, I'm talking about trade. And I know it's strange to think about bonds from a trading perspective, but the reality is, you know, like in my world, I don't I don't play treasuries for the yield. I play for the convexity when you get volatility in equities. Obviously it didn't happen this year, but what seems to be like it's closer to a low in price, bonds or stocks in your framework? So I'll tell you what I own right now. I own a little bit of both. I bought bonds at three and between three and a quarter and three per, 330 on the long bond. And I bought stocks right around here, about 100 points lower. And I like them both. And the reason why I like them both is because I have a view that the risk premium is the thing. And the risk premium, which goes into the point about how unlevered investors are now and 
come would come to the point on QT where my estimate for the impact of QT for the next three months is minimal relative to what's available in terms of market expectations, but also prices of assets and think that owning some of each is the best trade. And the reason I think that is because I think inflation expectations and growth expectations are, are highly volatile right now. And you want to diversify away from picking on either one of those two things. And the picking of those things, picking growth, for instance, determines whether you want to be allocated to equities only or bonds only. And I can't pick growth right now. I think if you saw last week's, if you spent any time on Twitter last week, you know that, well, last weekend, you know that it was all about the recession. And this week, it's all about the, that recession fear has completely gone away. And I don't think that's a great way to invest. And you're going to see volatility on that growth expectation. And so my trade is on both right now at, I think, attractive levels. I got got in at attractive levels. And, you know, I expect to be able to exit those in the next, I call it 60 days, at, attract, at better levels. Right. Which, which makes sense, because even if you go with the argument, which I don't disagree, that we've been in an everything bubble, well, then every, if it's an everything bubble that has been bursting, well, you know, likely you're going to have an everything relief rally. I mean, that's, it's, you know, one extreme tends to come the other. It's just the amplitude ends up being less, right? Is in just like a bouncing ball, so to speak. But this is a great conversation. We went a little bit over here, given that I had a somewhat late start since I was in another space. Everybody, please make sure you follow Andy. Andy, first time you and I are talking, I'd certainly appreciate your time, your knowledge. And I will close off by saying the following, and I kind of alluded to it in the beginning, and I think Andy can relate to this too. Twitter is an interesting social media platform because you now have two ways of consuming content, right? One is the old way, which everyone obviously still does, which is tweeting and not understanding full nuance because you're limited by characters and by characters in in some ways in the way that people respond. But then there's this other avenue, which is these spaces and these kind of audio conversations. And I do encourage people to try to join spaces as a way of using the app more. And I say that only because I don't think you really understand one's personality, one's mindset, one's analytical framework with a tweet, but you can get a little bit closer, at least by hearing directly from the horse's mouth, so to speak. I don't know, Andy, if you want to echo that same sentiment, but I think these kind of conversations are very important for people to pay attention to. Well, you've burst my cherry, so to speak, and this is the first spaces I've participated in, and uh, I'm coming back for more. It's great. I really, I really appreciate the time you've given me and uh, hope I added something to the, your listeners and look forward to using this type of vehicle in the future. Very good. Thank you, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com.
Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.